welcome to Kol Isha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kol Isha. I'm your hostess, Rebecca Feldman. And today we're going to take a deep dive into a topic that's become very controversial and polarizing, and that is the topic of vaccines. So as we all know, last year we had a major measles outbreak in New York and in several other areas as well. And so the topic of vaccinations really came to the forefront, and thank God that outbreak has been declared over. But the topic of vaccination will continue to be an issue as long as we have vaccines and as long as we have babies. And also it's flu season now, and one of the most hotly debated vaccines itself is the flu vaccine. There's also a bill currently on the table in Albany where New York state lawmakers will be deciding if the HPV vaccine will become mandatory for school, and also if the flu vaccine will become mandatory in daycare and preschools. And I've recently become aware that there's a bill in New Jersey right now that uh, will probably eliminate all religious exemptions for vaccines with the possibility of a couple of exceptions. Um, so today, there's lots to talk about, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest who is here to help us make sense of it all. And I'm pleased to introduce you to Blamey Marcus. Blamey is a nurse practitioner. She got her bachelor's from NYU and her doctorate in nursing practice from Hunter Bellevue School of Nursing. She currently works at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York City as an oncology nurse practitioner, and she's also an assistant professor of nursing at Hunter Bellevue School of Nursing. Blamey single-handedly started the Vaccine Task Force, which is a division of the MS Initiative. This is a group of Orthodox Jewish healthcare providers who share a common goal of educating the from community about vaccines and also about healthcare in general. So without further ado, welcome Blimi. So Blimi, can you give us a little background about yourself, about your experience in healthcare and what made you decide to start the vaccine task force and what were some of your goals and how it's going uh, today? So I have primarily worked in oncology care, which is cancer care, um, from the beginning of my career in nursing. So I never really interacted much with pediatrics or um, with vaccines in general, other than giving our patients the flu shot or the pneumonia shot if they were in the hospital and due for it. Um, so this was all very new to me. But when the outbreak started last year, people came to me as a community member, as a from woman, um, as a nurse and had questions for me about the safety of vaccines. They wanted to know if I vaccinate. They wanted to know if I've looked into the actual research. Um, and I started answering questions for people, which I often had to look up myself. And I realized that there is so much information out there and so much data and so many people who want that information and don't have good sources of information, don't have a way to access those answers to the questions they have. So together with a pretty fabulous group of other nurses and nurse practitioners, uh, now we've got PAs and physicians, some community members who don't have a medical background but are passionate about their community's health. We've really been working hard at disseminating evidence-based information in a way that is understandable to the community um, with empathy, you know, listening to their concerns and validating them, um, and always going back to the science to explain why we vaccinate. Awesome. So. Actually, you just mentioned the science of why we vaccinate, and that's a really great segue to um, one of the major topics I wanted to discuss with you, 
which is scientific research versus internet research. So basically, the reason that I think this is so important is because what we hear a lot from individuals, moms and just, you know, concerned community members, um, is a statement such as, well, I decided not to vaccinate because I've done a lot of research and I found XYZ. Um, and I think that when people these days talk about uh, doing a lot of research on their own, what they mean is a lot of internet research, which involves things like Googling, things like, you know, just following where the links take you, um, looking at various uh, YouTube videos where you have people who claim to be experts, maybe they are, maybe they're not, like there's really no way of knowing. Um, they've produced some sort of video on the topic. And so there's a lot of information out there. Now, how do we know what's valuable information, what's harmful information possibly, what are some good resources, what are some bad resources? You know, this was actually kind of funny because I was at your vaccine event in Muncie and there was a woman in the audience who was very passionate, clearly against vaccines, and she gave you a piece of paper that said, um, here are some evidence I came up with, and your response was, this is YouTube. I can't use this as uh, evidence. This is from YouTube. So explain to our listeners what you meant by that and why YouTube uh, might not be a good resource. What are some good resources? Um, what do you think about the topic? So that's a really, really important topic because while people will ask their doctors or nurses questions, we all know that they will still turn to other ways to get information. They'll talk to their sister-in-laws or cousins or the internet or books. So even for people who have people to ask, we all know that you're still going to like check out Dr. Google or whatever it is. And while the digital age has brought so much information to everyone and we can all look up anything we want to, people don't necessarily know how to go through uh, an unbelievable amount of information um, and do it accurately to make sure you're getting correct information. Um, and this is not limited to vaccines. This is limited to people who want to cure their cancer naturally and try green juices because they read anecdotal stories about that or other videos about that. So when it comes to vaccines, there is so much information on the internet um, and the vast majority of it is in blog form, um, on social media, and on YouTube. And that is where anyone can post anything, um, anyone can claim anything, and they're not required to back it up. No one asks you for your sources, and if they do ask you, you don't need to respond. Um, videos that are produced where uh, speakers will talk about uh, the risks of vaccines without using any evidence. So you're watching and reading this information and coming to decisions based on information that has never been proven. Um, and that's very dangerous. On the flip side, if someone wants to do their research, there are over half a million studies on vaccine safety and efficacy. So if you're looking for information, it's out there, but you need to know how to find it and how to find information that has been verified and has been done by independent scientists. Now, people like to ask me, what's an independent scientist? Because they think any research study is done by the pharmaceutical industry, for example. Um, and that's not true. Initial studies might be done by the pharmaceutical industry, but studies go through three phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, which are different levels of studies to see if something is safe, to see if it works. Um, and then they have millions upon millions of people that they study after a vaccine is licensed. And these are studies that are done by independent scientists who are just researchers, epidemiologists, doctors, nurses, um, anyone that knows how to run a study 
um, and is trained to do that. And they're looking at people who receive different vaccines and they follow up with different side effects to see if there are these effects that people worry about. And these people do not have the conflicts of interest that people in the anti-vaccine world have because there are some surveys out there that talk about um, how children who are not vaccinated are much healthier or children who don't get their vaccines have less ADHD or less autism. And when you start looking into those sources, it turns out that this was a survey administered to people who homeschool, people who follow homeopathy and other remedies. So that is not called a scientific study. And when you're talking to people who don't have a rigorous background in understanding how something can be reliable or isn't reliable, all the rules fall apart when they read and just it's easy to believe whatever you come across. So that's interesting because um, what, I, what I found was that when I look at studies myself, um, it's, so interest, it's so easy to sort of come up um, with conflicts of interest because, and this is kind of where Google comes in handy actually, because if you look at the name yeah. of the researcher on the study, all you have to do is plug it into a Google search and you might find who this person is affiliated with. And I found this a couple times within a matter of like two or three clicks. It's like, oh, wow, this person clearly has a bias for whatever reason. Um, so what I think what might be a good idea is you can use Google once you've looked at a study to determine if the researcher has a conflict of interest or not. Um, That's a great point. And yeah. there, there's a real big pile of very poorly done studies, which shouldn't really be called studies, done by two people. Um, in which they consistently find um, or report that high levels of aluminum cause brain damage, that vaccines have high levels of aluminum, which we all know is not true, but they keep putting together their papers and their studies and publishing them in really lousy journals. And these are papers that the anti-vaccine world will use as evidence. So when I was first looking at all this, I was a little alarmed until I Googled their names. And as it turns out, they run a little basement practice where they've both been stripped of their medical licenses. Um, they've been fined for injuring children with non-evidence-based methods to reverse um, autism. And this is a really great way to understand, are you looking at something done by someone who practices safe medicine, someone who uh, has a strong set of ethics that he goes by, and the answer there was clearly not. And a couple of more um, Google dives uh, just showed that they're clearly anti-vaccine, looking for data in any way they can find it, tweaking it to match their you know, personal beliefs. So that's a great way to know that that's not a reliable uh, method of getting information. Okay, so that's good to know. And then in terms of the, the type of study and the reliability, so how can our listeners find a study that is scientific, is evidence-based. When you go online to look for information, how do you know that one study is, you know, maybe very biased other than looking at the name of the researcher versus, a, like, like you gave an example earlier of a survey, right? And that's not really a scientific method of just asking people, hey, is your kid healthy? Is your kid not healthy? Like, I mean, that's very vague and anyone can clearly perceive that question any number of different ways. So how do I know when I go online if a study is valid and scientifically sound or if it's junk? So there are some methods that any person can use to kind of be a little suspicious and, and figure out if the study seems strong or not. Um, but then sometimes studies can be a little deceiving and it's very helpful to have a health professional look through it. And I can give you a quick example afterwards. But first, let me give you a few quick tips. 
Um, first of all, you want to see if this is the only study that found this finding. For example, if you find a study that states that giving three vaccines at once caused a higher rate of, say, eczema, you might be a little alarmed and say, all right, let's look into this. Now, what if you find no other studies on that? Literally none. And any studies that have been done did not find the same thing. That pretty much invalidates the original study because one of the rules of research is that it has to be replicable. If other researchers try the exact same study, they need to find the same findings as you. And if they don't, there's something wrong with your study. So if you're waving one study in the air and saying, look at this study and look what it shows, and there's nothing else, then that's a problem. You probably should throw that out. Mm -hmm. um, you also want to look at the date, because if you can pull out one study from 1992 that states something, but there's 30 years of research, can you believe it? We're almost 30 years out of 1992. Um, if in the last 30 years, there's a lot more current research, why are you still fixated on one old study from 1992? Could it be because you're inherently biased towards believing what you're reading and not open to the fact that it's outdated, has not been found anywhere else, and newer research has overturned anything found in that study. So you wanna look at the date. Um, like we discussed, you wanna look at financial disclosures and other conflicts of interest. Those things are always listed on a study, sometimes on the first page, sometimes on the last page. It'll state either where the researcher works or if they received any grants. And that's really important because um, as we were writing our Pi magazine, which if your listeners um, are familiar with, it's a magazine we produced as part of the Vaccine Task Force. It's about a 150 page manuscript right now on vaccine safety, how to um, you know, read research, um, undoing a lot of the common myths. Um, one of the things that we address in our Pi magazine is how is how to do this research and how to avoid these conflicts of interest. And there was this one time when one of the nurses on our vaccine course um, addressed a point in our magazine. And I looked at the citations that she used um, in her point uh, ended up being from a pharmaceutical company. Um, and while I personally don't have a deep mistrust of the pharmaceutical company because I'm aware of the very many levels of um, safety and protection that goes into their studies, I still wouldn't use that because it still is a conflict of interest. They're developing the vaccines. They are more likely to find reasons to promote them. So just like we avoid anything by people with connections to the anti-vaccine industry, it's really important um, to do that. But we also like to be honest about that and avoid any conflicts of interest on the industry side. Okay, so basically, I think to summarize what you're saying, tell me if I understand this correctly. Um, firstly, when you're looking for research, you should make sure that it's an independent researcher and they don't have any close affiliations to either the vaccine industry or the anti-vaccine industry, quote unquote. Um, okay, so that's one point. The other point is that um, when you're researching, you can use the internet to find scientific studies um, but you shouldn't just rely on blogs or YouTube videos without really being able to verify who's behind them mm -hmm. um, because of the possibility of people saying, you know, they're, they have a level of expertise and you just don't know if that's really the case. Um, and then the other thing is that when you find a study, if you want to use Google to your advantage, you can then Google the name of the person or the name of the sponsor of the study or things like that just to see who they are and who's behind the study. Does that all make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I think that's a great background into trying to do some 
research independently, um, just, you know, as a concerned parent or grandparent or healthcare provider or whatever it may be, um, to try and get a little bit of understanding of vaccines in a scientific way as opposed to um, an emotional way. And that's something interesting because I find that when you look at personal blogs and, you know, YouTube videos made by people um, who maybe have had a negative experience or a perceived negative experience, um, then there, there tends to be a lot of emotion involved rather than fact. And it's very easy to get caught up in that, especially as a mom. I mean, that happened to me too. Someone showed me a video that was like really almost tear jerking, like of this woman who was saying that, you know, her son has autism now and it was all caused by the vaccines and her life is so difficult and all these things. And it's like, it really, you know, it, it eats at your heart. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's so sad. Look what this woman is going through. Maybe there is some truth to it. And then it kind of becomes hard to separate out your emotions and feelings about this poor lady's life and the science of what's actually going on in the situation or just, you know, broadly with vaccines in general. So speaking of autism and vaccines, can we talk a little bit about that? So uh, the MMR, I think, is the big player right, in autism and vaccines, people uh, have this notion that the MMR might cause autism. Um, can you tell us about that, how that idea came about and what we know about it? Is there any truth to that? So what's the connection between the MMR and autism? So between the 1980s and current day, um, the criteria and diagnostic criteria for autism has changed a lot. Um, psychiatrists, psychologists, pediatricians have come to understand autism a lot better than we used to. There's no blood test for it. There's not a lot of imaging for it, although recent studies um, have done MRIs on six-month-olds and can kind of predict if their brain development looks like it, they might develop autism or have autism. So that's really At six months? At six months. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of fascinating. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, but in general, there's really no quick easy way to know if someone does or doesn't have autism. And the way it kind of develops after we perceive a child to be developing normally and suddenly not be developing normally um, causes a lot of fear in people. So the combination of a lot of new diagnoses coming around and doctors starting to understand the diagnosis, um, diagnose children more and more frequently, more special education programs developing around the country, uh, people started making the erroneous connection between um, increased vaccine schedules and increased autism rates. So they ended up rising at the same time uh, because we developed more vaccines and the autism rate was rising. So a lot of people just developed that connection on their own. And then there was this one really flawed study that was later retracted in 1998 in England where a researcher uh, took 12, 12 children whose parents were actually suing the vaccine company. So there's your first conflict of interest. Um, he was hired by lawyers and paid 500,000 British pounds. There's your second con conflict of interest. Um, they were not a uh, randomized group of people. They were self-selected children who were exhibiting autistic symptoms. There's so many problems with the study. And in his actual study, he actually claims that we did not find the connection we were looking for 
it appears that autism is driven by genetics, as can be seen that it's much more common in boys than girls. That can't be a vaccine explanation. That's a genetic explanation. So he says that in his study. However, he also held a patent on a single measles vaccine, and he didn't tell anyone this, didn't report that in his study. So that's problem number 400, basically. But he then went out and did a lot of press conferences where he uh, used fear tactics and misinformation to the general public in England about how dangerous it is to give the MMR and that he believes it's leading to higher rates of autism, even though his actual study says nothing about that. Um, so he caused a lot of panic, a lot of fear, vaccination rates dropped, um, and there were there was a huge measles outbreak, and there was, a, you know, a couple of measles deaths back in the late 1990s. Um, it took a couple of years for investigators to look into his study and realize how problematic it was, and then it was removed from, you know, the scientific databases. However, people just don't forget that easily. And um, autism is, you know, not very well understood, although we're learning more and more about it. So people just say, well, you know what, why take the risk? Um, and that's understandable. If you don't understand how bad the measles is, if you don't understand how bad the rubella and CRS, congenital rubella syndrome is, um, and if you don't understand the data behind it. So even though there is so much research since the late 1990s, um, and we, at, you know, in, as part of the Pi magazine um, editors, we kind of like to joke around and say thanks to Mr. Andrew Wakefield who ran this study because without this misinformation, the vaccine industry never would have developed all of these research studies to see if people, um, to, to, to see if this is actually a connection. You know, they had to calm the, 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 the entire global um, population who were now terrified of, of autism. So now there are so many studies done on millions of children between England, Japan, uh, Sweden, Denmark, the United States, Hong Kong, Australia. Every single country has run their own really large scale studies to see if there is a connection between the vaccines children receive and autism rates. At every and single study finds exactly- large scale, When you say large, scale what, what size population are you talking about at the very minimum a couple hundred thousand children at the maximum uh, one and a half million children and then there are some meta-analyses that put a lot of studies together for a total of 14 million children and put the data together and crunch those numbers to see if children who receive their vaccines as ordered as prescribed as recommended have much higher rates of autism the answer is always no. The numbers are exactly the same because they have nothing to do with vaccines. Um, so because these studies keep coming out and there's really no way to debunk these studies because they're large scale, they're well done, they're randomized, they're controlled, you know, they're, they're, they're controlling for other factors. There's no way to undo them. People now will say, well, it's not the MMR, it's the it's all of the vaccines. It's too many vaccines. Um, it's the aluminum. And we, there's a name for this. It's called moving the goalpost where, okay, we answered your question about MMRs and vaccines, but people still say, well, there's still more problems. So for most people, the MMR link to autism has been debunked. Um, in some communities, though, it still holds really, really strong. So basically what you're saying is that the original study that started this whole hype was a study done on 12 kids who already had autism and they were basically trying to backtrack and see if they could figure out why. And now we have many, many studies 
ballpark how many? What, um, what 10 studies, uh, 20 studies? No, more, way more. Uh, 40 more studies. Let's go with 40. 40 studies global around the world, right? That incorporate hundreds of thousands and multiple millions when you put them all together that show no link. Okay. And beyond that, yeah, and autism scientists reject that link as well. I mean, we're talking about the people who study autism, who look for those genetic susceptibilities, who look at potential causes for why it may be triggered in some children, not in other children. They, They laugh that theory away because it's just been so well debunked. And we're also mm-hmm. learning more about what causes, um, you know, developmental problems in children. So as we learn more about how it's not related to autism and vac- how autism is not related to vaccines, we're learning more about what may be those triggers. And maybe for some people that's helpful because ultimately we like to understand. We like to feel like we're a little bit in control. We like to be able to say, well, my son developed autism. How can I protect my next child from that? And information is helpful. Definitely. And I feel like, you know, a lot of the vaccine hesitancy comes from fear and just, like you said, wanting to have a measure of control. Because if you know someone or you yourself has experienced autism, it's hard. It Definitely these kids, you know, have a certain level of challenge that comes along with them. And, um, you know, that quote unquote, healthy kids don't have or kids without autism don't have. And if you feel as a mom that maybe you can have a degree of control over the situation and say, look, you know, my nephew maybe has autism. I'm going to prevent that from happening to my child. I'm going to do everything I can do. Um, And so you sort of cling to something that you've heard of or think might be the case, you know, or heard someone say, no, this definitely happened. My kid got autism after vaccines or whatever. Um, it gives you a measure of control and it makes you as a mom feel like maybe you're doing what's best for your child. But uh, basically what I'm hearing you say is that there's a wealth of information out there that sort of, uh, sort of, that actually really debunks that whole link. Um, it leaves, it leaves so no room really... for it anymore. But I do want to just raise one interesting point that I found in all of my research on vaccines. In several studies, um, researchers evaluated children who had a diagnosis of autism, confirmed that they did have that diagnosis, and then they went back and looked at their family home videos. These parents produced their videos that they had taken on their phone or on old videotapes, and they gave them to the researchers who watched them. And the researchers, who are very well aware of how autism presents and how early it could present and what it would look like in extremely young toddlers, noticed months and months before the parents even came forward with concerns that the child had issues either with eye contact, with um, perception of of visual or depth issues in, in, in in their perimeter, if they're walking into walls, if they're not associating with other people. You know, when it's your own two year old kind of minding their own business walking around the house, you might not pick up on things that researchers are much more well trained to do. And they actually found that these children exhibited signs of autism almost a year before the parents picked up on it. So you might have a parent that says, you know, I gave my child vaccines in December and by February he was acting different. That might be your perception, but as a parent who may not be trained in development in, in, in child development, those, ch- those specialists were able to notice these symptoms way before those vaccines were even given. So I found that really, really so that's interesting. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Basically, 
you know, it's, it's a timing issue of when the parent right. starts to pick up on it. Exactly. Um, and this is actually really interesting because you can, you can sort of make a correlation to anything in vaccines, particularly in the first year, because there's so many given in the first year. And something like that actually happened to me um, with my baby. And when she was due for, I think it was her six month vaccines, um, I took her to the doctor for them, but I noticed the day before, like something was different in her. She was like really cranky. I couldn't figure out why. She was just like acting off, you know? This was the day before her appointment. And when I talked about it with the doctor, he said, look, we very often see like little personality changes in kids at this age. They're sort of developing into um, a little bit more of an independent person. They're sort of developing their needs and wants. And very often they want to bond with you. They want to be held more or whatever. Oh, and so they express that more in oh. like crying and being cranky. Um, and when I thought about that, and he said it's totally normal and you know, whatever. Um, and then I, we went through with the vaccines and she was fine. Um, but when I thought about it, I realized that I noticed that change in her the day before the vaccine. Right. What if I had noticed the change right. in her the day after the vaccine? I said, oh my gosh, like maybe the vaccines had some effect on why she's now acting a little different. And that was Absolutely. kind of like eye-opening to me Absolutely. because our babies go through so many changes in the first year. Like you can yes. make a connection yes. to anything in vaccines, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think people don't give babies and infants and toddlers enough respect in terms of how much they're changing and going through in those early formative years. And assuming that a vaccine is responsible for a change in their development is really not appreciating developmental changes in these children. Um, and the timeline issue is really important because I, at our Muncie event, I was talking to a woman who came up to me and said, you know, I really have a hard time. My child developed epilepsy after vaccines and he never had seizures before. And after one of his shots, he developed uh, seizures. And I, I said, well, walk me through this. And she said, well, he got some of his shots in like January. And she said, then in the summertime, he had his first seizure. And to someone who doesn't really understand the biology of medications and pharmacology and, you know, uh, the kinetics of all that, it might seem plausible that anything new you introduce to your child's system might be responsible for changes six months later. But I said to her, I said, if you would have given him Tylenol in January and he would have developed um, autism or epilepsy six months down the line, would you still blame the Tylenol? And she said, no. And I said, if he would have gotten antibiotics in January and developed something in, in uh, say, August, would you blame the antibiotics? And she said, no. And I explained to her that vaccines pretty much work the same way in that you give it at the time, it triggers your immune system to create memory cells against the particular disease. And then it's kind of not in your system anymore, other than those new memory cells. That's not the product. It just doesn't work that way. And this was all new information for her. Um, and she had to process that. But those are the faulty connections people come to when they hear stories or they experience it on their own and they make those connections. So that's actually really interesting what you just said, because I've had this thought myself where, and I wonder what you think about this, where people say, you know, vaccines are responsible for this, vaccines are responsible for that. I have a relative who has been questioning vaccines a lot, and she says, well, look, the rates of vaccines went up like this so much. When, when my kids were little, we gave a few, and now they give like, you know, X amount, which is so many more, and this is on the rise, and that's on the rise, and autism, and cancer, and this and that. And there's just so many things that she seems to correlate to be a product of an increased right. amount of vaccines. And it made me think of like, why, 
why are you choosing vaccines as the scapegoat? Like, what's the reason that you are, and so many others, are sort of just uh, picking on vaccines? Like, there's a lot of other things that have been on the rise, too. Like, we have so many environmental changes. There's so much more pollution in the world. There is so many more chemicals put in our food. There is so much more use of antibiotics and other things that, like, 100 years ago weren't around, you know? So, like... Yes, there's a rise of certain things. There's also a rise of the scientific understanding of certain things, like you said, with autism, with many, many other diseases. I mean, like the rates of cancer, you can say, have gone up, or maybe we're just detecting them more because we have imaging studies that didn't used to exist. So I don't know if you have an opinion. Oh, rates of cancer? Oh, that's fascinating. I would love, I would love to talk to you more about that. <laughs> I know, but just to leap in on that, yeah. um, I got a call from an anonymous person who asked me why I'm, you know, advocating for vaccines, and I said because they're safe and they're important in keeping children safe. And she said, "But don't you see how cancer rates are rising?" And I said, "I don't know if she knew I'm an oncology nurse practitioner." And I said, "Actually, cancer rates have been dropping one percent per year um, in males and one and a half percent in females." And she was quiet. And then she said, "Well, maybe on paper." So that's a really good example of someone who's being given new information and can't reconcile that with what she thinks she's seeing. So I think in an era where we know so much more, we are connected digitally and on the phone and there are GoFundMes being shared on their social media, it seems like everyone is sick. It seems like the world is falling apart. It seems that illness is on the rise. It seems like everyone has asthma and allergies and we never used to have that, which is not true. Um, people just start making those connections. They go, we never had all these problems. Now we have these problems. What can it be? And the big bad wolf that everyone points to, like you said, is vaccines. And I think one of the reasons for that, I think there are many reasons for that, but I think the two biggest ones is because it's easy to paint it as a money-driven industry. That is really one of the biggest um, uh, pushes that the anti-vaccine uh, uh, movement uses. You know, oh, it's all about money. If you vaccinate every single citizen in every single country, do you know how much money you make? Never mind that the tetanus shot is a couple dollars while being cured for if you catch tetanus is close to a million dollars. Um, so number one, it's the money. But number two, it's also the fact that we are very privileged and don't know what these diseases generally look like anymore. So. Last year, when we had the measles outbreak, we had 20 Orthodox from children in ICUs. Now, when I tell this to people, they either don't believe me, which is up to them, but that's a little ridiculous. I actually personally know the physicians that were caring for them. Um, they were having end-of-life conversations with these parents for some of these children who ended up pulling through. Wow. So they were children really, really ill on ventilators or on high-flow oxygen that almost didn't make it. Um, so some people just either don't believe it, or they want to know, well, were they sick before, which is such an upsetting thing to raise as though children who are either immunocompromised or who have other illnesses are somehow less worthy of being protected. I mean, that's the whole concept of herd immunity to protect our infants, our grandparents, the sick children among us, the pregnant women among us, you know, there's, it's a faulty understanding of why we vaccinate. Um, so people just don't really remember. And there was this one woman who got really angry when there was an emergency um, um, public ban for people in Rockland County, where you, if you weren't vaccinated, they did not want you out in public back in last, last spring. Mm -hmm. And she said, what kind of joke is this? What are they trying to accomplish? And I texted her back, this is a really Hasidic woman, and I texted her back and I said, well, they probably don't want any more from kids in the ICU. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, we're up to about 17 right now. And she said, is that true? And I said, yes. 
And she said, well, people need to know that. And I said, why? And she said, well, maybe then they would vaccinate. So I think people just don't really know how bad the diseases can get. There's this fallacy that these childhood, these childhood illnesses are a rite of passage. They strengthen your child. It gives them natural lifelong immunity, which is not a myth. That is true. But to some. Without consequences. Right. So there are so many reasons why people just don't think vaccines are important from not understanding the disease or not understanding the vaccine that has just caused vaccines to be the culprit. And I think for many people, the measles outbreak did reverse their thoughts, maybe not for the really firm anti-vaxxers, but for many people who are on the fence and they realized what that meant, they were like, okay, no, this is, this is not what I signed up for. Um, I'm not okay with my child having the measles. I do not want to, my child to be hospitalized and I don't want to be responsible for making other children sick. Um, I mean, I work in a cancer hospital. We had the entire pediatric floor shut down and we had security there because a Orthodox child showed up and his father came to visit him. The father had a rash and they were from a zip code of a from family. And you've got 30 children with cancer on that floor. You cannot afford to let them catch the measles. And it was, it was a real shock to a lot of people um, that your actions have consequences. And one of the questions that I got a lot during last year's measles outbreak that I heard a lot of people talking about was, well, has anyone died? I mean, I just heard this over and over again. Like, yeah, there's this major measles outbreak. It's terrible. People are getting sick. And, you know, well, has anyone died? And um, that just made me think, like, you know, is death the only thing we're trying to prevent here? Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about how what the risk of death is with the measles and some of the other things that come along with the measles that maybe are not death, but also unpleasant. <laughs> yes. So the measles has no treatment. It's a virus. So there's nothing we can do to prevent, to, to, to take care of the measles itself. Um, what the measles is, it's actually a respiratory illness. People look at a rash and think, oh, it's a skin rash. It's actually not. It's a disease of the lungs. And most of the time when someone develops um, the measles, they've got that cough and runny nose and it develops into pneumonia very often. And most deaths from the measles happen from pneumonia. So most of the children who get really sick will develop pneumonia. A lot of them will be fine afterwards. Some of them will require a lot of support through that, whether they need oxygen, they need nebulizers, antibiotics, and all the other things to help them get through it. So in the past, the death rate of the measles was very high because back in the early 1900s, they didn't have these supportive oxygen methods to support them through that. We didn't have antibiotics. So the measles death rates were much higher in the past. So when people say, oh, people don't die as much of the measles. That's absolutely true because we have more modern medicine. And no, it has nothing to do with hygiene. This is respiratory. Washing your hands is not going to help you prevent the measles that much. Um, so right now the death rates are much lower so people are taking old death rates and saying oh i thought one out of a thousand died see we had ten thousand cases of course not ten thousand reported the reported number is like 1200 but we also know that many 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 children had the measles who never reported it because they didn't want to be ostracized stigmatized didn't want the health department calling them so we know the, the numbers are much higher and when there are no deaths, they're kind of all celebrating, like, ah, no one died. The measles is not as dangerous as all these pro-vaccine people are making it seem. But that's really a faulty way to look at it because all of the data, and this actually goes back to the 90s. You know, you know what I'm going to talk about now, Ricky, the immunosuppression that comes from the measles. It's not brand new research. We've actually seen it 
long ago as well. It's only now that they're able to really study it well by looking at the antibodies that children have before the measles and after they have the measles when they're all cleared of all immune memory they have. This was not able to be studied as well years ago. So what I'm talking about is how when the measles attacks your body, um, your body fights back, right? You've got your immune system that tries to clear your body of all of those um, viral pathogens and um, lymphocytes and all that. When your body clears your system of the measles, it takes your immune memory of almost everything you've acquired. So take a five-year-old child because that's really the age when many people catch the measles between age two and five. By the time they're five years old, they have immunity to um, several kinds of colds, you know, different kind of rhinoviruses, um, different kinds of GI viruses. You know, they picked up germs here or there. They've gotten sick once or twice. They've got a stronger immune system now because of it. And now they have, um, they're immune to many new diseases. Um, that all disappears when the immune system clears out the measles virus. So, so it basically wipes out their hard drive of all the immunity that they've had up till exactly. that point. Exactly. Like we all know children are sicker when they're little, right? When they're first um, being exposed to new things, they're touching things, they're eating things, they're going to playgroup, they're going to preschool. Um, that's when they're getting sick. We also know adults are sick way less than children. How often do we have sniffly runny noses? I mean, a fraction of a percent because by the time we're 20 or 30 or 40, we just keep acquiring and building up like what we like to call our treasure chest of immunity, mm -hmm. where your body has been exposed to so many things that you're just no longer getting sick from them. Your body recognizes it in advance, mounts a response, you don't end up getting ill. That is how the immune system works. But now you take a child who's supposedly age four, age five, has gotten sick a million times, got over it a lot of times, gets the measles, and it clears them of a lot of other memories that they had developed. And now what happens is it's not just that now you need to start all over again. We have found in our research that children who have gotten the measles have a 40% higher chance of requiring a prescription in the first year after the measles as compared to children who don't catch the measles, which pretty much means they're sicker for a full year or two after they have the measles. They have more doctor visits, they have more infectious disease, they have more hospital visits as compared to children who did not get the measles, and they have higher death rates for at least two to three years after the measles. Wow. So when people say the measles is beneficial, they actually don't know the science behind that. That is not true. They might be assuming that. They might have a placebo effect, looking at their child and say, wow, they've got a much stronger system now for having gone through and survived the measles, so now they're more robust. That's magical thinking because that is just simply not how the immune system works um so what we really try to get out now to people is explaining why we vaccinate and this is a great example not just because it's a rash and not just because death rates are lower now that's right it, it, it is lower now but now your child is at risk for a lot of other things that they didn't need to have been at risk for if they would have never have caught the measles and I actually want to give you an interesting example of that. Uh, what to go to your point was the case uh -huh. of measles, uh, um, and it sort of snowballed. And they had to try and get people to to vaccinate people who were exposed while in the office when there were cases of measles. If they hadn't yet been vaccinated, they had to try to get them to either vaccinate or get the immunoglobulin. And there was one kid that was right. um, a baby, and so she couldn't get the vaccine yet because of her age. And they were trying to get her to get, trying to get the parents to give her the immunoglobulin and they didn't want to. And the kid wound up getting very sick. 
and she had to be put in the ICU because she did get the measles and she got very sick. And so uh, they asked the parents if they would talk to other people and say, look, you know, my newborn got really sick from the measles and it's worthwhile to vaccinate and all the stuff. And the parents said, no, it was actually really good because now the baby doesn't have eczema anymore. And um, she was really kind of shocked by that. And when she asked some doctors, like, what does that mean? Like, is that, is there really any connection between the baby having the measles and not having eczema? She was told that, you know, this is, was kind of theoretical, but it's possible that there is a connection because eczema is an autoimmune condition. And they said, now the baby's immune system has been affected and she can't mount that autoimmune response to even develop eczema anymore. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Actually, yeah. Um, so, so that's actually a really interesting point. And I was in Washington DC in November where I sat with the researcher who has done all this immunosuppression research, uh, Dr. Mina. And I was there in the room with about 15 researchers. I did not belong there, but it was nice that I was invited and I learned so much. And one of the things he raised was that people have felt or shared or observed that after catching the measles, they either, um, their eczema clears up or their psoriasis clears up. Okay. And he said that in his studies where he observed that the measles lymphocytes wipes out other lymphocytes, skin conditions are basically localized um, plaques of lymphocytes, right? It is an autoimmune disease. And when the measles wipes all of that out of you, he said, there's, it does make sense, although it hasn't been rigorously studied. I think there's one study and I tried getting it from him and I forgot, so maybe I'll revisit that, but it does clear out the eczema or the lymphocytes wow. or, the, or the psoriasis. So I found that really interesting and I've heard that people have made that connection on their own. So, so it sounds like eczema and psoriasis are kind of a nuisance, but they are actually proof that your immune system is working. Right. Um, now, my daughter had eczema and it was a nightmare because she was up at night, she, her skin was rough, it was red, she was uncomfortable. Um, we kept using different creams, we wanted to avoid steroids, but steroids were the only things that worked. So we were always figuring out, was it her food? It's very frustrating. But would I ever trade an ICU stay for her to get rid of the eczema? Certainly not. It's not even something I personally can fathom. Um, maybe it's because we're medical professionals. We know how quickly uh, people can go downhill. You know, the ICU means your body is extremely unstable. So the fact that this couple took away a positive experience from their ICU stay is so alarming to me. Um, Eczema and, also was outgrown. Yeah, and thank God that baby so, survived, which maybe gives people a false sense of security. Well, look, all of them survived, but there's really no guarantee that a kid is going to survive. Yeah, I mean, Baruch Hashem, but it doesn't mean that that's going to happen yeah. in every case. A kid that's sick enough to be in the ICU is very often touch and go. And that means when I, you yeah. know, from my healthcare perspective, when we put a patient in the ICU, that's basically saying things here are touch and go. I, it can it can go down south right. very, very quickly. And that's why they need that extra level of support, that extra super close monitoring. You know, we're Absolutely. looking at a situation where there's really no guarantee for survival. And the fact that all the kids who were in the ICU did survive is a miracle and it's a blessing. And we say Baruch Hashem, but that's a huge risk that like you would never want to give your child. It's also due to really good care. 
you think about it, it's also due to really good care. These are children in the tri-state area, New York and New Jersey, who have access to really good medical centers, really good doctors. Absolutely. Um, and we live in an era with really good support systems. But that's not a reason to take advantage of it and allow ourselves to get sick and rely on the fact that we'll probably be fine. Um, I mean, we hope. We <laughs> don't know. Right. We hope so. But we also don't know who we will transmit these diseases to who will not be fine. Um, and... There, there's just so many there's just so many reasons to not look at the measles as something beneficial from scientific reasons to ethical reasons um, it's just one of the messages we really try to get across okay so I think that we've basically come to the conclusion that we don't like the measles <laughs> um, we don't it's not good Okay. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like we touched on earlier, there's a lot more that we want to prevent than death itself. Of course, death would be awful, but there's a lot more leading up to death that is terrible as well. That includes ICU stays, that includes kids losing all of their immunity, um, you know, possibly putting other children at risk. Um, you know, this is something that I, I heard during the measles outbreak, which was very disappointing to me. Actually, a close friend of mine um, had a daughter who was on chemo and she had to keep her daughter in the house. She were not able to go to the grocery store. They were not able to, you know, be exposed to other kids or, you know, play with the other kids on the block or whatever, um, because her doctor told her no in certain terms, like if your child gets the measles, it can be absolutely deadly, much more so than for a healthy kid. Um, and I saw some discussion about this where some people were saying, you know, we have to protect, these are the vulnerable kids. Like you, you need to vaccinate your children because ultimately we're protecting these really vulnerable kids. And some of the responses that I saw that was so disappointing was some women saying, well, I'm sorry that your kid has cancer, but like, that's your problem. And I'm not going to put my child at risk with the MMR vaccine just so you can leave the house. Like, so stay home. I mean, what do you have to say about, you know, conversations like that? I personally found it to be so hurtful and like disappointing. I was running a workshop in Williamsburg and the woman who coordinated has a three-year-old son, last year he was three or four, who had leukemia and had just been in remission and he had not gone to school the whole year prior because he was sick and last fall he was allowed to go to Hager but last fall the measles outbreak began and he couldn't go. So. Um, she organized this little workshop where she got a lot of family, friends, and neighbors to come and learn about why vaccines are important. She lived in an apartment building in Williamsburg with a lot of people who do not vaccinate, and she had to keep her son home from school and not allow him to play with anyone. And I ran this workshop. We went through the science behind different vaccines, the dangers behind different diseases, a lot of myths. And at the very end, we, I, I was ending off on a communal perspective, you know, um, as from people, we believe that we do need to look out for one another. And one woman said to me, well, if that child is sick anyway, he'll die of something. And I had such a hard time with that. And I knew that the anti-vaccine movement had really reached a new low. That's not, that's not an ethical thing to say. It's not a Jewish thing to say. That is not what we believe. Um, you know, well, if it's Bashar for him to die, he can catch the flu or he might catch, you know, any other thing. And it doesn't have to be what, you know, just because I'm not vaccinating. And I said, well, if I knew it was a flu that I gave to that child, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. And last year I gave my three-year-old the flu shot, not really only for him, but because I live with my grandmother and my great aunt in, a, in one apartment house. And my grandmother and great aunt are 88 and 90. I would not feel comfortable knowing that they might catch the flu from my son. So 
this sense of responsibility for one another is something that we all should have and not say, well, old people die anyway, or sick children might die sooner anyway, or he's not likely to live, or there was this, the first death in Israel from the measles was in a child with Down syndrome. You're like, oh, he wasn't healthy anyway. What a, what a terrible way to look at other humans. Now, my understanding is that this stems from the false perspective that vaccines are dangerous. And if someone has a condition that might cause them to die anyway, why should I vaccinate my child if it's risky? So that's just unfortunate. And it's a very faulty understanding of vaccines. We know vaccines are safe. We know that they've prevented death and disability and illness over the last few decades. I think people who really feel that strongly that they're not responsible for making sure others stay well just really have a really wrong understanding of the dangers of these diseases and how safe the vaccines actually are. I mean, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt because that's a really harsh statement and I've heard it from people. Yeah, and I think the benefit of the doubt kicks in where um, we can assume that these people have just heard some very scary information about vaccines and, you know, they are trying to do what they perceive right. to be best for their children. Um, and so right. that's where I would give my benefit of the doubt, where they say, look, I, I'm too scared right. to harm my child for the sake of someone else's child. But yes, like you said, it's extremely important to understand um, that that's not an equivalent you can easily draw because you're talking about right. giving your child something that's been proven safe over and over and over versus a child who is really, yeah. really at high risk of having really unfortunate outcomes if they do um, get sick. And uh, to piggyback off of that, I would just wanted to sort of end with, uh, you know, since this is a podcast for From Women, um, the science is fascinating. Um, but just to give a little bit of a perspective from like more of a Hashkafic point of view, um, I heard this story a few times from Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, who is what like someone I consider a mentor. I don't know him personally, but I've heard a lot of his um, talks and um, I was working as a registered nurse and I came across a series of talks he gave on medical ethics. Um, at this point, I had my first baby. I had given her her vaccines. But um, like I mentioned earlier, someone in my family had been talking to me about vaccines. And so I, I was like a little bit hesitant because I'd heard some scary stories, but I, I was vaccinating her anyway. Um, and I heard him tell this story about how when he was practicing in Israel at one point, there was a family in the community that didn't want to give their child a particular vaccine. And he mentioned that it was a vaccine that has since been changed at the time that the story happened. It carried a risk of, I think, one in 20,000 children having a negative side effect. Um, at this point in time, they changed it and the risk is much, much lower if, if at all. But anyway, the point is they didn't want to vaccinate because of this one in 20,000 risk of their child potentially having a negative side effect. And he and the other doctor in the practice really tried to talk them through it and they try to give them perspective of, you know, how it's a very, very small risk and you really need to protect your child and other children and they didn't want to do it. So they wound up taking the question to Harav Yashiv, who was one of the major uh, Torah giants of the past generation. And they asked Rav Yashiv, what is the um, halakhic obligation of vaccinating children? Uh, they said this particular family doesn't want to do it and what should they advise? And Rav Yashiv said, you have to give the vaccine. You have to even coerce them into giving the vaccine. And Rabbi Tatz asked him something to the effect of, oh, and that's so that it should be fair, right? So that everyone 
has equal responsibility to protect each other. Maybe you're concerned about the risk. Someone else can also be concerned about the risk, but we all have the same responsibility. You shouldn't be able to shirk your responsibility of vaccination and leave it to everyone else. And Rav Yashif said, actually, no, that is not the halachic reason. The halachic reason is because we are obligated in hishdadlas when it comes to uh, healthcare. We all know that we have to put in a certain amount of effort and then Hashem is ultimately the rofe and we rely on Hashem. But our obligation when it comes to hishdadlas in medicine is to do what's considered normal for your day and age. And in today's day and age, vaccination is considered the norm in medical circles in scientific yeah. circles among doctors and healthcare providers it isn't debated very much there's a broad broad consensus that vaccines are safe and so revalyashev said the reason is that you need to vaccinate your kids the reason is because it's considered normal for the time and so you rely on hashem to do the rest once you've done your part and i found that so fascinating because to me, you know, science is great, research is great, but ultimately so much in our life, most everything in our life is also guided by the perspective of our religion, of our Yiddishkeit and um, yeah. being able to rely on, you know, a major Torah giant like that saying, you vaccinate your kids, everything will be fine. So then he had another question and he said, well, what if I convince this person to vaccinate their kid? and their kid is the one in 20,000 that God forbid has a bad reaction. Like, what are they gonna say to me? Look, you coerced me into vaccinating my kid. Now my kid, God forbid, had a problem. So the answer that was given to him was that you don't escape a gezeira min hashemayim by doing something contrary to halacha. In other words, if your child was meant to have a problem, your child was meant to have a problem. If you did everything in accordance with halacha, it wasn't what you did that caused your child's problem. It was Hashem's gezeira. Right. So if you do what you're supposed to do in terms of halacha, in terms of hishtadlis, in terms of hashkafa or whatever it may be, then you're covered. And God forbid a child has a bad reaction or a bad outcome or whatever. It's not because of what you did, because you did everything right. It's because Hashem wanted you to have a certain problem. And I think that's so important for us to keep in mind. And it also takes a lot of the guilt off of parents or the potential perceived guilt, right? What if I vaccinate my child and something happens? What if they have a bad reaction? What if anything, right? And you you can say to yourself comfortably, no, I did what I'm supposed to do. I did my hishdadlas and I'm leaving the rest to Hashem. It takes a, a large amount of emunah and betachon and whatever, but I think that a lot of yes. us have the ability and to do what? that. Yeah, yeah. Just, 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 to, just I, don't, I don't want to forget this, but what you're saying is, is that people have this fear that they'll do something to injure their child and inactivity is so much easier. Being passive and saying, I'm not going to do anything now. Let me wait. You know the the Peach magazine. Their uh, motto is you can always you can never unvaccinate. Sorry, there's some background noise. That's um, good. So you can never unvaccinate, and parents just don't want to be the one to make a decision that can hurt their child. And after our event in uh, Williamsburg, we I got I got a message from a woman who said that she and her sister came. They planned on staying for five minutes. They do not vaccinate their children. That with the new New York law, they were planning on homeschooling this year. And she said that she and her sister-in-law stayed for two hours, her sister stayed for two hours and were blown away by how informative the doctors and nurses there were, how compassionate and empathic they were in 
in addressing their questions and that they plan on now vaccinating and trusting in Hashem that they will that their children will be okay. And I think that that's pretty much what you're saying here. You know, we do have to trust that this is the right thing to do. It's endorsed by over 90% of the world's doctors and scientists and Rabbanim. Um, but even like one pediatrician that I've spoken to extensively said to me, do you think when I vaccinate my child, there's not this tiny thing of concern that they might be the one to develop a rare side effect because there are these rare side effects um, and no one wants to be that one. But as for people, we do get that luxury of relying on our faith that we're doing the right thing and we're hoping that that's going to, you know, keep everything okay. Right. And just to very briefly speak to what you just said, I find that I get that little bit of shakiness anytime I give my kids anything because I've seen in practice so many things that happen. People have reactions to the most bizarre things, right? Like how many countless patients have you met that have had anaphylactic reactions to antibiotics, right? So anytime I have to give one of my kids a new antibiotic, I'm always like, oh my gosh, what if they have a bad reaction, right? And then I just have to say, look, I I found a doctor that I hope is guiding me in the right direction. That's my hishtadlis. And, you know, I have to yeah. give my kid an, an antibiotic because they have this infection. Not giving them the antibiotic would be way, way more risky. And I'm going to trust that Hashem Absolutely. will do what's best for my child. If they have an allergic reaction, that would be very unfortunate. But then that's what was meant to be. And then we'll deal with the allergic reaction. So it's right. not just vaccines that that applies to. It's pretty much anything that you're going to do to your child, uh, particularly when it comes to healthcare, but so many other things in their lives. And I think I just wanted to end yeah. off by saying, you know, a little bracha that hopefully we can all do what's right for our children. We can do the hishtadlis that's meant um, to be done. And the rest, we can hopefully just have the amuna to, to rely on Hashem, that he'll take care of us, our children. And I wanted to thank you so, so much for being with us, giving us your precious time. I know you're super busy and have 5,000 things going on. But thank you so much for being with us, Blimi, and good luck in all of your endeavors with the Vaccine Task Force. And um, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.